Titus chapter 2. The Apostle Paul is applying sound doctrine to the different groups within the church. In verse 2, the older men. Verse 3, the older women. Verses 4 and 5, the younger women. Verses 6 and to 8, the young men. The fifth and final group is the Christian slave. Exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters. The word servant here could have the idea of any form of employment or service. But the word here is a slave under a master. And this group is often controversial and somewhat embarrassing to the modern commentator and preacher. One way we know this is the case, because doing research for this verse, it is amazing how many men skip any real teaching on slavery and go straight to the employer-employee relationship. Now, does this text apply to the employer-employee relationship? Yes, it most certainly applies. But it's not about that. It's not about employment. It is about slaves. And so I, as I, am a man under authority. And it's my call to preach the word in season, out of season, every subject, all the counsel of God it is therefore my duty not to skip over it and teach employee-employer relationships but to speak specifically of what God is teaching here regarding Christian slaves however since this is such a controversial subject I feel I just cannot do it justice if I taught on this particular subject for 10-15 minutes and then go on to the rest of the verse and apply the exhortations. So what I want to do today is preach an excursus sermon on biblical view of slavery and then next week we'll return and deal with the actual passage and context regarding application for the slaves and applying it rightly to those who work under employment. <coughs> and so this afternoon, I want to look at an overall biblical view of slavery. And I want to do this under three headings. One, a biblical view of slavery. Two, a Christian view of slavery. And three, a gospel view of slavery. I think it's uh, helpful if I inform you of my method here. By biblical view, I'm simply going to do an overview of the biblical passages. Then under heading two... It's really a systematic summary. 
How should Christians view slavery? And then the third heading, because the Bible uses slavery to teach the gospel, I'll conclude with the gospel according to the picture of slavery. So first of all then, of course, a biblical view of slavery. What is a slave? What is slavery? As you probably know by now, uh, maybe to your annoyance or not, I always start with definitions because the logical foundation. If we don't define our terms here, we're going to go way, way, way off. To the modern reader, when you think slave or slavery, you think exclusively of one kind of slavery. You think of the modern European race-based chattel slavery. That is people from one particular ethnicity. They are simply property without any real rights. And it's perpetual bondage generation to generation. That's how most Americans think of the word slavery. And therefore, when you read the Bible or any textbook in history, you automatically define it like that and force it into what you're reading. Now, that's wrong. That's wrong. Because the biblical understanding of slavery is very different to that one modern, narrow view. So what is a slave. The Hebrew word is ebed. And it simply means to serve, to labor, to work. And it's applied in so many ways. When Adam had to till the ground, ebed. He had to serve, labor, work the ground. When it says that Israel are to serve the Lord and worship him, it's Ebed, serve to worship. When it says that the suffering servant is to come, Jesus Christ, it's Ebed. In the book of Kings and Samuel, it speaks of citizens or the people of Israel as Ebed to the king. And many, many more ways. So the basic idea is to work, to labor, to serve. Now the Greek word here in Titus chapter 2 verse 9 is doulos. And you might recognize the word doula. Where uh, often mostly women, they will support and guide and help a pregnant woman during and after childbirth. Doula. Well, Duller does not mean one who serves. Duller actually means a female slave. Of course, we don't use it that way today. But that's what it meant in first century Greek. Doulos is someone under the authority and will of a master. And so bringing the Hebrew and the Greek together... We may give a basic big biblical definition of a slave as follows. A slave 
is one under the authority of a master who possesses the person by law and whose person is subject to the master for service and labor. So it's very basic principles. Biblically, this is a slave. Now, what exactly is the nature of a slave? Where did it come from? I'm going to look first of all at the Old Testament and then New Testament. First of all then, the Old Testament. Where's the first time we have <coughs> slave in the Bible? It's in Genesis 9.25 where Noah puts a curse on his son Ham as punishment for looking and exposing his nakedness. Noah says in Genesis 9.25, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, or a slave of slaves, or a slave of servants, shall he be to his brethren. God shall enlarge Japheth, he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. Now, sadly, there were people who did not know their Bibles and used this to say that African slaves should be slaves because it fulfills this prophecy. And people who say that have obviously never read their Bibles. Because what does it say here? First of all, Noah is cursing Ham. And he curses Ham by cursing one of his sons, Canaan. Ham had many sons, such as Cush. And that's where uh, Africans come from. The land of Cush, Ethiopia. Mizraim, Phut, and Canaan. So the curse is not to all the sons of Ham, but only one son, Canaan. Who are the descendants of Canaan? It's not hard. The Canaanites. The Canaanites. Who are the Canaanites to be slaves unto as a punishment? Shem. Who are Shem's descendants? If I said Semitic people to you or anti-Semitism, it's speaking not only of Israel, but the Semitic people who are related as well as what we call Hebrew people. And so the prophecy here is sometime in the future, the Canaanites are to be slaves of the Semites, specifically the Hebrew people. We'll pick that up later. Then the next time you hear about slaves, it just simply says such and such a person had slaves. So in Abraham, chapter 12 of Genesis, it simply says, Abraham went from the Ur of the Chaldeans to Israel and he had many slaves. It might say men servants and female servants, but we're just using slavery for consistency here. And then you go and read Genesis, they just had slaves, they had servants. What does this teach us? God never instituted slavery. 
slavery came from man after the fall outside of the covenant community and then simply came into the covenant community by way of culture. So Abraham, this is the first time we ever have slaves, lives in where Chaldeans and what does his family do? Worship false gods. And in the Chaldean culture they have slaves. And as part of the culture, Abraham comes to have slaves. And he brings his slaves into the lands of Israel. And so where's the source of slavery? Not God, but man, outside of the covenant lineage. But the first teaching by God regarding slavery is in Exodus 21. I'd recommend you turn there for your own reading. Exodus 21. Context. Israel has just been redeemed from Egypt. God has come to them at Mount Sinai and given them the moral law. And then after giving the moral law, he gives the judicial law. So chapter 21, verse 1. Now these are the judgments which thou shalt set before them. So in the Old Testament there are three laws. Moral law, ten commandments. Ceremonial law, priesthood, sacrifices, etc. And judicial laws. These are laws are for Israel as a nation. There are temporary until the new covenant and then these laws are expired but the general equity that's the basic principles do apply to the new testament but the law as a law expires and as you see in this passage it is simply god regulating and not instituting Slavery. Big difference here. To institute it means to establish it, originate it, to approve it. To regulate is to take something that's already happening and give it rules so as not to be abusive. John Calvin gives you the standard uh, historic view on this. He says... From this passage, as well as other similar ones, it plainly appears... How many vices were of necessity tolerated in this people? So did God institute divorce? No, he hates divorce. But why are there laws of divorce? To regulate it. Because if you don't regulate it, you're going to get a lot of abuse. Polygamy. Did God institute polygamy? It's in the Bible. <laughs> Abraham, anyone? Jacob? David? Regulation, not institution. These are vices. These are things that are already within the culture. And God's not going to take away everything from his people. Why? Because we're not in heaven. We're in a sin-filled world. And we need to know we live in a sin-filled world. And so he gives regulations 
so that these things are not abusive and excessive and extreme. Divorce, polygamy, including slavery. Now what is a slave here? We've only given a basic definition. Well, everything you read here is very different to chattel slavery. It's not race-based. It's majority voluntary. The end goal is always freedom. They are not merely property. They're, they're humans with human rights. They're protected. They're provided for. They are families that can't be split up. Let's look at these things slowly, one by one. Verse 2. It says, If thou buy a Hebrew servant. Okay? So when you see the word buy there, it doesn't mean what we mean buy, necessarily. You think buy, and you think, okay, there must have been a slave market, and you went down the slave market, and you bought yourself a Hebrew slave. That's not what it means. It means here, that people voluntarily sold themselves into slavery. Leviticus 25:39, If thy brother that dwelleth by thee be waxen poor and be sold unto thee, or in the Hebrew in the middle voice, he sells himself unto thee. Thou shalt not compel him to serve as a bondservant. They shall not be sold as bondmen. See that? So it's not a market to buy. That was forbidden as we just read. But in Israel, the vast majority of slaves were people who were poor, couldn't afford their homes, couldn't afford clothing off the children's back, couldn't afford to provide. And so what they would do, they would sell themselves into slavery so that they can be provided and protected for. Or debt. Maybe you were bad with your finances and you got yourself into debt and now you're bankrupt. What do you do? Today you just go to jail. Or prison. But not in the ancient times. There was something better than prison. You sold yourself you worked off the debt. And as you worked off the debt, food and clothing was provided for. And so most people in Israel that were slaves did it voluntarily for basic needs. Now is this the only reason people were slaves? No, it wasn't. The other way was prisoners of war. This didn't happen much in Israel, but it did happen that when you were in war and you were fighting and they were taken, they didn't put them in prisons and jails like today, but instead they would be given to people families, estates, and they would have to work and labor. And so these are the ways in which Israel had slaves. Now how were they to be treated? Leviticus 25:40. 
It says, do not treat them like slaves, but as a hired servant and like a sojourner. Thou shalt not rule over them with rigor, but shall fear thy God. So, you're not to treat him like a slave, but like a hired servant. Slaves in Israel got paid. Slaves in Israel got paid money for their service. That's why a lot of people said, it's right Bibles translate this word servant and not slave. Because to the modern reader, we think slave, no rights, do the work, no wages. But that's not what it was. And so lots of people say you shouldn't translate the word slave because they are slaves, but our idea of slaves are so polluted. But slaves in Israel were actually paid a wage for their service. Treat them like a sojourner. Someone who's a foreigner. Why is that? Because God says, I love this fo the foreigner. In Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 12, it says... You shall love the sojourner as your own. You shall not vex him or do him wrong or oppress him. So just like the sojourner in the land is protected, so are slaves. You shall not rule over him with vigor, excessive work, forcing the person to be exhausted from work, harshness or cruelty or beatings. But fear thy God. Then it says, you were also a slave in Egypt. Don't forget that. Therefore treat them with respect. And then it says in verse 2 of Exodus 21. Six years he shall serve and in the seventh year he shall go free for nothing. The end goal of slavery was temporary so the maximum is six year service and then the seventh year freedom and they didn't have to buy their freedom it was for nothing but not only that when they're free the master is to give them things to help them in their life for example Deuteronomy 23.15 Thou shalt not deliver unto his master the servant Oh sorry that's a wrong law um, Deuteronomy 15.13 When thou sendest him out free from thee Thou shalt not let him go away empty Thou shalt furnish him liberally out of thy flock Out of thy floor Out of thy winepress of that wherewith the Lord thy God have blessed thee, thou shalt give unto him. Remember, you were also a servant. So you silly, you, you're paid wages, six years, released, he has wine, he has food, he has cattle, be blessed. The other way that you could be released is you can be redeemed. So a family member could pay the money. So if you're in debt, you have to pay out the debt money. Or if you're sold into slavery because of poverty, an agreed fee. And any family member at any time could come. Here's the money. And they must go free. 
A third way they could be free is the year of Jubilee, the Sabbath of Sabbaths. So when that year came, even if you worked six months, as soon as the Jubilee came, everyone went free. And there's a fourth way someone could be free. If you run away, you're not allowed to bring them back. Deuteronomy 23.15 Thou shalt not deliver unto his master the slave which is escaped from his master. He shall dwell with thee even among you in that place which he shall choose in one of thy gates. Now why would a slave ever run away from his master? Because the master in Israel, like we said, is to treat the slave like a hired servant. Provide food and clothing and such things. You have no reason to run away. But what if a master turns nasty and cruel? They have the right to run away. And if they run away, it's forbidden to take them back. So when the US southern states had that fugitive law, it was unbiblical and sinful and wrong. Continue reading here. If he came in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he were married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. So if a man comes into slavery single, very single. If he comes in married, no splitting up the family, comes out married. But what if he's a slave and gets married? Well, because he has a hired service and he's then released for whatever reason, the wife still has to pay off her debt. But either she can be redeemed or the year of jubilee, then the wife and the children would be set free, just like the man, and then the family could be reunited. But there is not to be a separation of the family unit let them marry let them have children and if the man set free first the woman still has to do her service so let's say a man is set free he marries the wife year three into his slavery uh, that means he's released then she still has three years of service or the year of jubilee comes or the man released has the money to pay for the redemption of his wife and children Verse 5, if the slave shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him unto the judges, he shall also bring him to the door, unto the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through the all, and he shall serve him forever. But if someone is so kind to you and gracious to you and gives you work and help, why would you want to go back to poverty? or debt you think when I get out of here I've got no good way to live and my master's been so good to me I do not want to be released I want to be remaining as an ebed slave and therefore he has the right to give himself for life and then it continues on time is running out uh, but I'll skip a few verse 16 he that stealeth a man and selleth him 
or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. What we call the slave trade was a capital punishment. So if you take someone to sell someone, death. Or if you have someone, I didn't steal them, I, I just received it, death. There is to be no kidnapping or slave trade. That's basic to the Old Testament law. And then it says in verses 20 to 21, that if you kill a slave, then the person who killed him must be put to death. John Calvin commenting here, that God may show how dear and precious men's lives are to him, he has no respect to persons with regard to murder, but avenges the death of a slave and a free man in the same way. Indeed, it was a proof of gross barbarism amongst the Romans to give masters the power of life and death. So the master has no power of life and death to the slave. And if the, the master kills the slave, death penalty. And if the master injures the slave, verse 21 and 26, then that slave is set free. Very different to chattel slavery. Leviticus chapter 25, however, has one distinction. Thy bond, Leviticus 25, 44. Thy bondmen and bondmaid, slaves, which thou shalt have, shall be of the heathen that are round about you, of the strangers that sojourn among you. They shall be taken as an inheritance for your children, to inherit them as a possession, they shall be your bondmen forever. What about this law? What's the context? Year of Jubilee, land, inheritance. It's about the covenant land looking forward to the heavenly Canaan. And so no Hebrew was allowed to be a perpetual slave because it would destroy the covenant gospel and the people around them are who? The Hittites, the Jebites, the Perizzites. Of what people group children are these? The Canaanites. Genesis chapter 9. And so in promise of that curse, and for redemptive historical reasons in the judicial law, the Canaanites around them were allowed to be perpetual slaves. However, Numbers 15 says, the same law for the Hebrew is for the sojourner. Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 10, you shall love the sojourner and not vex him, oppress him. And it's the judicial law which ceases or expires. And so you can't say today, you're not allowed to enslave Christians this way, but you can enslave non-Christians this way. That's not how the judicial law works at all. So during the Old Testament, you were allowed perpetual slaves so long as it was the Canaanite sojourners around you, but you must treat them with respect 
The same law to the Hebrew slave applied, and it was only for the time of the judicial law. Now we come to the New Testament, and it's the Roman world. And slavery is everywhere. Everywhere. A third of Rome were slaves. And they estimate up to 30% of the entire Roman Empire were slaves. And some slaves were exactly like the Hebrew slaves. They were poor and they were in debt and they gave themselves to a master. But actually there was this professional slavery. You wanted to learn how to draw, be an architecture, architect. You wanted to learn a craft or a skill. You would sell yourself into slavery under a master and serve him for an agreed amount of time and you would learn the trade and in the console slaves rose up to be the actual confidants of all the politicians because you can't trust another politician can you and then there was also slave trading and brutality and cruelty it's all of this combined and when the New Testament enters, it's entering this world. And in the New Testament, it says, just like Exodus 21, 16, no slave trade. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. The lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, sinners, murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, manslayers, man-stealers. That's those in the slave trade. You steal someone, you sell someone. You steal someone, you sell someone. A man-stealer is the same kind of person as a murderer, as a homeowner, them that defile themselves, homosexuality. They're the exact same in terms of viewpoint as the man-stealer. So the Christians were forbidden to engage in the slave trade. Or any of that. Matthew Henry comments on this passage. Where men stealers are reckoned among those wicked ones. Against whom laws must be made by Christian princes. So Christian princes must have laws to forbid. Kidnapping. Man stealing. What we call chattel slavery. But then in Ephesians 6 9. Paul speaks to masters. Masters do the same things unto them, forbearing, threatening, knowing that your master is in heaven. So the masters who do have slaves, treat them right. You've got your master in heaven and you're going to give an account. And then in other passages like Ephesians 6, Titus chapter 2, slaves are converted. What do you do? You obey your master. Don't steal. Don't be argumentative. Work hard. And then it says in Philemon. Where a slave runs away from the master. The slave is converted. And Paul writes to him and says. I could command you. But I'm going to appeal to you in love. And most commentators believe that is an innuendo to release him. 
And then at verse 16 it says, Receive him not as a slave, but a beloved brother. Equal. Galatians chapter 3 says that ye are all baptized into Christ, in which there's neither male nor female, nor born nor free. Slaves are equal to their masters. Full church membership. They can be elders. They can be office bearers. They can be in the midst of a church with masters and not split up in their own special slave church. Equal. And Paul says it's actually best if slaves are freed. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 20-21 Art thou called, being a servant? Were you called to Christ and saved as you are a slave? Care not for it, but if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. So if you were a slave and you were saved in Christ, what's rather, what's better for that person? Freedom. Do everything lawfully you can for freedom. So we have all this, a little bit of a fire hose, I understand. Is a good biblical summary of, free, uh, of slavery. Now, how do we put it all together? How should Christians view slavery? Number one, define the term and don't just use it according to modern definitions. It's going to cause all kinds of problems for yourself and others. Basically, a slave is a servant laboring subject to a master. And then look at the biblical use of it. Vast majority is voluntarily with human rights. John Murray says, The slavery which the New Testament recognizes is an entirely different perspective from what the word slavery is liable to connect with us. We are ready to construe slavery as the unrestricted right of the master to the service of his slave. This is a complete misconception. It is not the slavery of the New Testament which it accepts, and it is a conception that the New Testament plainly condemns. 1 Timothy 1.10, man-stealing. So define your terms. Number two, recognize the source of slavery. So if anyone says God is pro-slavery, that's like saying God is pro-divorce and pro-polygamy. To use words like God instituted slavery is like saying God instituted divorce, God instituted polygamy. It's someone who's not thinking skillfully, rightly dividing the word of God. As you distinguish between imputed righteousness and imparted righteousness. Just as we distinguish between substance and accident. We distinguish between institution and regulation. And slavery came outside of the covenant community in a separate culture and then came in and God regulated it. Because in heaven no one will be slave to another man. And in paradise there would have never have been slavery. Slavery is by definition against nature. Samuel Rutherford in Lex Rex Slavery of servants to lords and masters 
as such were as of old amongst the Jews, is not natural, but against nature. Because slavery is a penal evil and contrary to nature, and a punishment of sin. Slavery should not have been in the world if man had never sinned, no more than there would have been buying or selling of men, which is a miserable consequence of sin and a sort of death. A man being created according to God's image is a sacred thing and can no more by nature's law be sold and bought than a religious or sacred thing dedicated to God. So it's not natural. It's a result of a fallen world, but regulated. And it's interesting, Rutherford then applies that. Since this is the case from a slave individually, so the citizens of a nation. Because if slavery is natural, then that means absolute monarchy and slavery of a people is okay. But Rutherford says, no, 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 no. Just like in nature, an individual slavery is a result of sin and not nature. So absolute monarchy and the bondage of a people is also unnatural and to be resisted. I commend Lex Rex for further explanation of that for yourself. Third thing, certain forms of slavery are permissible. Certain forms of slavery are permissible. I never said good. I said permissible. Orthodox reform people who are abolitionists even recognise this. Alexander MacLeod, a famous reformed Presbyterian, writing in 1801 against um, the slavery in the South. Even though he's an abolitionist, he's a biblical abolitionist. You see, the other abolitionists said slavery at all times is wrong in all circumstances and you should churn them out of society. MacLeod says, the proposition that is speaking against the slavery in the South does not militate against slavery under every form. By no means. A man by the abuse of his powers to the injury of society may forfeit liberty. He may deserve slavery for punishment. And the 13th Amendment of America agrees. The 13th Amendment of the Constitution says, Neither slavery nor involuntarily servitude except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within these United States. So even the Constitution is not against our slavery. So if someone's in debt, and if it was allowed today, I would much rather be a Hebrew slave than go to prison. If I was poor and destitute, I would much rather be a Hebrew slave than struggling in the depths of welfare. If someone commits a crime, it is right that they are becoming slaves. Prisons, jails, labour. Certain forms of slavery are permitted. 
to deny this, you have to deny the Bible then. Exodus 21, Leviticus 25, Colossians 3, Ephesians 6, Titus 2. Certain forms are permitted. Fifth principle, uh, sorry, fourth principle. Race-based chattel slavery is wicked, sinful, and unbiblical. To take a people group because of their ethnicity or their weakness, to steal them, sell them, and perpetually slave them is a wicked thing. This means the Arab world from the 7th century and onwards has sinned against God wickedly with slavery. The African tribes who would war with each other, kidnap and then sell into slavery in Africa, in Arabia and in Europe is a wicked, detestable sin. Europeans such as my home country, in Portugal, in France and other nations who engage in this slavery, wicked, evil sins. And of course, the United States of America. Not all slavery in America was race-based chattel slavery, but the huge chunk of it was, and the Bible says it is an evil, wicked thing, worthy of capital punishment. Richard Baxter, reflecting Henry's comments, as we read earlier, to go as pirates and catch up poor Negroes or people of another land that never forfeited life or liberty involuntarily and make them slaves and sell them is one of the worst kinds of thievery in all the world. And such persons are to be taken for common enemies of mankind. And they that buy them and use them as beasts for their mere commodity and betray or destroy or neglect their souls are fitter to be called incarnate devils than Christians. The Free Church continuing. In 1844, the General Assembly wrote a letter to the Presbyterian Church of America to express its dissatisfaction and disagreement with the chattel slavery. And presbyteries and individuals wrote numerous letters to America to say this is against the Bible. Chattel slavery is against scripture. And when William Cunningham and William Burns came to America, the southern churches refused to entertain them because the men preached against chattel slavery. And so, biblically, Historically, slavery, some forms are permitted, but race-based chattel slavery is absolutely not permitted. And I'm thankful that as a former member of the Reformed Presbyterian Church and presently a member of the Free Church, there is a good testimony in history against it. Fifthly, The end goal of the Bible on permitting certain forms of slavery is always towards freedom. Freedom. The year of jubilee, freedom. The Hebrew servant, freedom. The judicial law for perpetual was only for a body politic. 
John Murray again. I commend John Murray's article on uh, slavery and the principles of conduct. See, he doesn't take the abolitionist view, all slavery at all times is sinful, but he shows that shadow slavery is distinct from that biblical perspective. But he says, though slavery as the property of one man and the labor of another is not intrinsically wrong, it does not follow that we ought to seek perpetually to perpetuate slavery. Scripture does not encourage but require the promotion of those conditions where slavery is unnecessary. So again, 1 Corinthians 7, it is rather, it is better that you go free. Why? Because it's against nature and it's good for a man to be free. Sixth application today. There are more slaves today than there were in the 18th and 19th century. Everyone's talking about the Super Bowl, right? The number one place in America for slavery. As traffickers know, they can make money. And poor women enslaved will all be forced to go to wherever it is this year to make a profit. This happens everywhere at every sporting event and it's in every city. There's slaves in this region, I guarantee you, traffickers. In certain immigration communities, Mexicans, Chinese and others, slavery is still ongoing. They're in foreign lands, they're poor. People come to them and go, oh, I'll get you access to the United States. I'll help you cross the border. There's work for you. They get here and you're my slave. It's interesting with all the wokeness, which we're 100% against, there's not much about sex trafficking or slavery in the immigration community. I don't know why that is. It'll be interesting to fellowship with you if you've got any wise ideas or reasonings. But it's quite disgraceful. All this hoo-ha, and in a sense rightly so, and in a sense because of the wokeness aspect, not, of the 19th century, not much about modern slavery. But we as Christians care deeply. Involuntary slavery, where there's no rights, and people are truly in bondage and suffer, Christians want to release. And that's why Christians are involved against the sex trafficking industry, and Christians are involved in those immigrant community slaveries, not only in America, but around the world. Saudi Arabia, which the government never wants to criticize because they, of course, they, they buy a lot of our weapons. What's prevalent in Saudi Arabia? Slavery, like real slavery, not just service and bad money or working on a construction site in bad conditions. I mean real bondage slavery. And when do our politicians ever cry out against the slavery of Saudi Arabia? They don't. Because they don't really care. Why? Because it's lining the pockets of people in certain industries. But we should be different. We're not playing politics here in terms of party. We're talking about Christians who love freedom and desire people to be free, especially in the gospel. I've taken too far, but I do want to take longer. 
the gospel in slavery. The Bible takes slavery and preaches the gospel. Sin is slavery, John chapter 8. The one who commits sin is a slave to sin. Sin is our master. We serve. We do its will. We do its bidding. We can't do anything else but. We're in bondage. We're so blinded we do not even think we're in bondage. We think we're free but we are sinners. And then God says I am going to save you from the bondage of sin by becoming a slave myself. Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 10 it says Jesus is coming in the incarnation to save us. What language does it use? Psalm 40 verse 6. When Jesus comes in the world it says his ears were bored. Where does that come from? Do you remember we read it in Exodus 21? If a slave love the master and wants to be a slave forever, there shall be a boring in the ear. And Jesus is saying, I am going to be the slave of God all my life. I belong to him and I'm going to do his will. What's his will? Sacrifice and offering, not from animals, but I am going to give up my life and die as a sacrifice so that I may release sinners in bondage. And when this gospel is preached, what's the language? Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me to do what? To preach good news and glad tidings unto who? To proclaim liberty to the captives. To proclaim freedom to the slave. The true emancipation proclamation. The truth shall set you free. And when you're free, what do you become? A slave of God. Romans 1.1, 1, 1, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Romans 6.22, but now being made free from sin and become slaves to God. Because Jesus bought us with a price. And this is a willing, voluntary, cheerful, loving service to the greatest master of all. And in the New Testament, the gospels for all men, free and slave. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 13 for by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be bond or free. Isn't that beautiful? So someone is a slave, is living a hopeless life, is full of the, the, the cruelty that can happen. Once they have Christ, they are equal to every brother and sister in Christ. Will there be slaves in heaven? Well, when I said, will there be slaves to other masters in heaven in terms of men to men? No. Why? Because the curse is removed. But there are slaves in heaven. Because everyone in heaven is a slave. Revelation 22. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb be in it, and his slaves shall serve him. And they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads. Every single individual Christian is going to be in heaven like a slave. Not cruelty, not bondage, 
holiness to the Lord. And our service is perfect, sinless, joyful, love-filled, ecstatic, blessed worship of God and fellowship in Jesus Christ. And this is a biblical overview and the gospel for slaves. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful for the Holy Scriptures, which are the rule of all things. And we are thankful that we are called to not simply read it, but study it. And to rightly divide the word of God. And we are thankful, O Lord, that the Scriptures teach us jubilee and freedom and liberty and serving Jesus Christ and Lord, we look forward to that slavehood in heaven. That time when thy name is written on our foreheads. And we in our glorified state serve thee in the fullness of love. 